Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 27, Living in Love and Faith. Why would the Church of England spend three years on a navel-gazing talking shop costing millions of pounds creating quite a bit of bad publicity and causing a lot of frustration. Well, since you ask, firstly, better George Orr than War War. Andrew Brown has been the Church Times media man for decades, on and off. When he reached his first retirement after about 15 years, Andrew said the most striking thing about church life over that decade and a half was how much church people hate each other. It's not many centuries since we used to kill each other over internal church disputes. So much better to get people talking when you see a big church row coming over the hill. If the conversation goes badly, people might feel murderous towards each other, but there's a good chance they might learn a bit of empathy for the other lot. Secondly, smash those silos. In my experience, usually when church people talk about something quite difficult like this, they tend to talk only to the like-minded. So you get conferences of conservative Christians stiffening each other against the godless forces of loony liberalism, licentiousness and debauchery. And then somewhere else, another lot will be fired up by injustice and discrimination against lovely lesbians and godly gay men. But they would not actually ever get to talk to each other. They stay in their silos where they feel secure. They only ever hear about the other side in pejorative terms, those church wreckers. And they never get to hear them set out their stool in their own terms. Living in love and faith encourages people to listen to each other across the barriers. Thirdly, bottom-up is better than top-down. Yes, at some point the bishops will have to lead, but much better to bide their time now until they've heard from the pew people. I think Welby's purder in refusing to give his own views on this issue for a few years now to really allow the process its own momentum is wise leadership. At some point he'll have to give his two pennyworth, but not yet. Meanwhile, all over the country, in metropolitan hipster areas and crumbly retirement zones, young and old, rich and poor, are considering the issues together. If there are hard, unpopular decisions, this will give the bishops cover. But maybe there's low-hanging fruit. Maybe they can take this thing forward a step or two in a way that strengthens the organisation and costs virtually nothing. I suspect there may be some pleasant surprises. A lot of participants seem to think they personally have got quite a bit out of LLF. Every generation or so, church looks at changing something big. Little changes can be traumatic enough, but big changes are a real existential challenge. Look at the issue of usury. The New Testament didn't forbid lending money at interest. 
in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council brought in the prohibition, which later generations relaxed as the church changed its mind again. So that's a double U-turn. Women's ministry a generation ago, ouch, that bust up was painful. Circumcision for the first generation of Christians. On today's issue, sexuality, St Paul was a conservative, but on circumcision, he was a revolutionary. In Acts 15, he was the iconoclast who insisted that whatever the Torah says, we must let newcomers join the church without circumcision. Peter was not the only one unsettled by this. Church changes its mind on big things. And those decisions have usually been made by a few men in a room, whether it be the ecumenical councils at the first few centuries or Roman Catholics shifting from Latin to local language services. The Church of England General Synod tried to consult more widely than itself with women's ordination. But this is a much more ambitious project of consulting widely. This is not a few grey beards in one room. These are thousands of people in hundreds of rooms over a period of several years. The papal ban on contraception is a good example of how not to carry the people with you. The sort of leadership Justin Welby is giving us here is the opposite of papal infallibility. So I think there are good reasons for this living in love and faith process. Is it any good? I have to say it's better than I expected. I think they ask the right questions. They've looked at the big issues. What is God like? What does it mean to live as a human being with God in your life when it comes to love and relationships and identity and marriage? I'm mainly concerned with just the sexuality part of it today, but it's bigger than that. After a couple of years preparing materials, the process, the active process, is three years long, which I think is a good length of time, not a token term and not a never-ending eternity. There's a 480-page book for nerds and a five-session course for the normal. Each session has a prayer, a Bible reading, an open discussion, a story or two from real people. I like the material. I think the different positions are set out fairly so that someone from that side would think they're being fairly represented rather than satirised. It's honest about the disagreements. It doesn't try to pretend we all agree. There's something quite grown up about this. What I really like is the openness of it. It's not like the highway code test where there's only one right answer. It asks questions, but it really does leave it to the participants to come up with their own answers and perhaps their own questions they want to come back with. It's been done in parish groups and diocese study days and all sorts of institutions. And I would imagine some groups have reached agreements and others will agree to differ and some probably couldn't even agree on that much. So I think the 6,400 submitted responses will tell you something important about the Church of England in this period. 
I suspect that a historian looking back on the early 21st century of church life in perhaps a hundred years' time will find this a goldmine shedding light on what church people really thought about all sorts of things. Now, of course, it's been attacked from both sides. Some conservatives complain that the loaded life stories of sexual minorities are put on the same level as the Bible. Some gay people think it licenses a platform for homophobia, giving yet another soapbox to beat them and make them feel like second-class Christians. I sense that both of these strong-minded groups, and I'm not going to call them extreme, feel a weariness with the whole thing. Conservatives point to all the other consultations the Church of England has been through in recent decades about this. They have a sense that they keep being asked the same question again and again until they come up with the right answer. And many lesbian and gay Christians feel they're accepted without question everywhere else in life, so they're fed up with trying to justify themselves in church. Whilst I don't want to call either of those groups extreme, I suspect the LLF process is most effective in the middle of the road. In Middle England, a lot of people have changed their mind over this issue in recent years, and I suspect a fair few church people will change their minds during this process. And I think it's important in church life to give people the space to change their mind. So what's going on in the head and heart of Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby? I can't really speak for him. Oh, hang on, wait a minute. I've just found an app on my phone called Archbishop Mind Reader. And it says it can show me exactly what's going on inside his head. I'll just open it up, yes? And I'm just going to set the year to 2013, which was his first year in office, right. So what the app says is that he's just taken the top job and he realises straight away the two most difficult political challenges facing him are women bishops and homosexuality. Women bishops is easy enough for a chief executive style ABC like Justin Welby, even though it defeated his predecessor. Push, push, push and finish the job. With the gay issue, his own instinct is to slow things down. He's from the side of the church which is used to saying the only place for sex is in the marriage of a man and a woman. And if you listen to his first year office speech about the government's same-sex marriage bill in the House of Lords, he was not very encouraging about this new law. But he's not stupid enough to think everyone agrees with him. And he quickly realises that any attempt to enforce the old ways is going to blow up in his face. So that was the Archbishop Mind Reader entry for 2013. Is that the end of it? Oh, wait a minute. There's something for 2017. The bishops produce a report about marriage and same-sex relationships which 
whilst recommending a kinder tone to gay people, clarified that the gay people were not going to be offered any blessing of their relationships in church. When it was put to General Synod, they voted to not take note. Quite a rebellion. So, Welby can see that this is now the most divisive issue of the era. So what he decides to do is kick the can down the road. Not forever, but for five years or so. And to use this time for a genuinely wide and deep consultation process. I'll turn the Archbishop Mind Reader app off now. I don't think this was a cynical attempt to run away. I think this was wise leadership and living in love and faith has been a worthwhile experience in itself. The submissions are now in and Welby and the bishops will have to do something about it and I think they will fairly soon. So, Church Ahead says two cheers for LLF. Oh, go on then, two and a bit. In fact, if the Archbishop of Canterbury were to invite Revel for tea at Lambeth Palace, we might even be persuaded to give three cheers. Thank you for listening to episode 27. Please join me next week when I tell you where I think the Church of England is going next with sexuality. Sexuality.